this week on the Backtable Podcast. It's building a relationship like this on, you know, a non-emergence setting allows them to be very comfortable giving us a quick call when something comes totally. up that's out of the ordinary. You know, I had learned a, a little bit of snaring from Kyle and Kyle, you know, wasn't there one day. When I was snaring, someone had more than 30-year-old leads and, and I snared it and I pulled so hard, the snare broke in the heart and went nicely to the right atrium and sat nicely in the right ventricle below the tricuspid valve. Not good. <laughs> That's a true nightmare, you know. And uh, in, a, in a few seconds, I, I said, you know, we need to call Kyle. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. We will start the episode in a minute, but first, a brief learning moment from our sponsor, Inari Medical. This learning moment is from episode 196 on building a successful PERT team with Dr. Karin Gonzalez. What advice would you give to you know, IRs or other endovascular specialists out there in either private practice or academics that are, that are interested in forming a P response team in order to improve their management of P patients? So I would definitely recommend to those out there interested in creating a PERT program that you start small, limit the number of people initially involved in the planning process and select the most qualified, <laughs> compassionate, and dedicated people to be part of your PERT team. It's not only important to make a treatment decision as a team, but it's also invaluable to have a support, the support of the team members, especially the pulmonary critical care docs, when you're doing the procedures, especially in those uh, critically ill patients. So if you have a strong team and a real dedicated team, they'll be with you in the middle of the night helping you manage the massive PE patients. So I think it's very important that the, the physicians are selected you know, very, very um, carefully. You posted a, a pretty cool case on Twitter. It was a big lollipop thrombus mm-hmm. that uh, that you got out. Yeah, so I think um, that was a big PE that we pulled it, out it and got like stuck it. at the toe, <laughs> the tip of the catheter. That wasn't that was a little exciting. Um, but I think there is a couple of things that we're incorporating in the per team that we haven't uh, seen before, and one is clot in transit. Uh-huh. and also uh, vegetations on either the tricuspid Ooh. valve or on pacer leads, you know, so cardiac leads. So we have used the suction thrombectomy devices in those uh, circumstances. Um, and um, that has definitely been incorporated into our uh, PE response team. This learning moment was brought to you by Anari Medical. Now back to the episode. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host, recording in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kyle Cooper from the Department of Vascular and Interventional Radiology and Dr. Tamid Contractor, Department of Clinical Cardiac Electrophysiology in Loma Linda, California. Guys, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Hey, so we're going to be talking about, um, you guys have developed a you know, really cool collaborative approach to removing foreign bodies, uh, and we're going to learn about how you guys are doing that. But uh, the first thing I wanted to do is take a minute and and hear a bit about your programs at Loma Linda. A lot of our listeners are trainees or med students and are going to be interested to hear what your training programs look like. So, Tamita, I'm going to have you start. Tell me about the EP department at Loma Linda. 
so the yeah ep department is the is a department of of within the department of medicine and the division of cardiology we have five electrophysiologists uh, right now we cover the main hospital which is in loma linda and we also do outreach at three or four neighboring hospitals so it's a it's a huge catchment area we have we have a lot of patients with uh, a lot of different pathologies uh, we are starting our electrophysiology f- fellowship program actually this july first of july so uh, we are actually pretty excited our first fellow is going to be joining us and uh, yeah it's a extremely busy program we just moved to a new hospital so we have gone from around one and a half to two labs to three labs just for ep uh, so it's all exciting we are uh, looking to hire more eps as well in the future Kyle, how about you you've been at loma linda now for what four years about yeah over four years now uh, and you've got a, a new role right yeah, I, um, I have been the associate director here for the Division uh, of Interventional Radiology for the last year, but following the departure of one of my friends and partners, Scott Fujimoto, I've taken over as the residency program director for IRDR as well. It's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. It's also good for your trainees. I mean, you're known for doing pretty much everything that you know we do in interventional radiology. What does the, the training program look like there? So currently we have... Uh, we're approved for two IRDR uh, residency spots per year. And sometimes that'll change from year to year, depending on the number of ESIR residents that we have who may mm-hmm. be wanting to stay for an independent residency. The training program here is quite large. There's 11 residents per year, if you include wow. all the diagnostic residents. And um, very high volume. And yeah, Loma Linda, the reason that I was um, so interested in coming here from my previous job at University of Michigan was that it also includes a lot of vascular experience, um, mm-hmm. PAD, and there was a big opportunity for expanding venous interventions, which is something that uh, Dr. Dave Williams and Manaj Kaja had really mentored me in uh, during my f- couple years at, at University of Michigan. So a good mixture of the things that I learned at Miami, the things that I learned at Michigan that I could bring and, and implement into the practice. But it's a very robust practice here. Uh, there's very little we don't do. Uh, I also fill some niches and lymphatic interventions, particularly in pediatric cases here. Oh, yes. And uh, endo AVF creations. So, a lot, you know, I'm able to not do the things that I don't enjoy doing as much, like oncology, because my partners love that. And uh, yeah. hopefully that helps the trainees get some more niche uh, education from attendings who spend more time doing the procedures. Yeah. And a terrible place to live, right? Bad oh, weather. Horrible. Nothing to do. Yeah. I figured you know, it sucks. <laughs> Great for a cyclist like me. I'm able to ride pretty much every day. That's right. So, well, good deal, man. I, you know, I know a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in hearing about the program and you'll see some applications, I'm sure. So, you know, you guys kind of have a unique relationship in the way you guys are working together. How and when did you guys start working together? I think the best part about our starting to work together was this close proximity of the EP lab and the IR lab. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. Like all the other labs are in one kind of wing of the hospital, like the cath labs, interventional labs, and you know, the ORs. And then mm-hmm. on the other side are the IR labs and the main EP lab. They're all like, they're right across each other. Oh. And I don't know how that came out to be. I have no idea. But, you know, it's just great that, you know, uh, if he had any issues with access or any, any questions, you know, we we would just walk over and, you know, find one of these guys yeah. and say, hey, you know, I have this, I can't get access. And, hey, this vein is occluded. And what do you think? And, you know, so that's how I kind of started getting to know a lot of the IR guys. I joined around seven years ago now. I'll, I'll be finishing seven years this July. That's how I actually got to know all these IR guys. And I remember meeting Kyle when I had an issue with arterial access uh, when he first joined and he 
kind of helped me through about what to do in that particular case. It's It's been a long time ago now. I don't remember the details, but that's when I met Kyle for the first time. And then, you know, obviously we got to talking and one thing led to another. Yeah. And I think, you know, those cases notwithstanding, we we were growing uh, our Venus recanalization practice pretty quickly uh, after yeah. starting here. And uh, some of our patients, I was seeing a lot of patients that were coming to me with uh, with a pacemaker lead already in place and an occlusion, mm-hmm. plus or minus a fistula on the same side, things like that. Things that are often sent to us and someone just expects us to maybe put in a stent across the lead, things like that, that I've been trained, they're probably not in the best interest of the patient. At least, that, you know, especially now, right a- around when I was starting as an attending at Michigan, leadless pacemakers were, were hitting the market. And uh, we were spending, we were basically seeing all of these patients collaboratively there and trying to decide, okay, does the lead come out? We switch them to leadless. Are they even a candidate for that? And so that, uh, I wanted to recreate that relationship here uh, and have uh, have these patients be able to see both specialists before uh, we make a decision about what's uh, what's in their best interest. That's cool. That makes a lot of sense too. I mean, and and actually, I'm going to be interested to hear you know, as we get into this a bit further, really where you guys stand on that in terms of stenting with leads in place because there there's still a lot of controversy on that. Like, I don't even, you know, I'm not sure I know the right answer about what the rules are there. But we'll get into that. What other kind of things are you guys working on together? I can go first, Kyle. But I, you know, I I think the one of the things we do is obviously ablations where we have to get access to the heart to ablate either in the right atrium, right ventricle, sure. or, or go transeptal to ablate from the right atrium into the left atrium. You know, the most common ablation we do is actually ablation in the left atrium for atrial fibrillation. And obviously most patients, more than 95, 96% patients, we don't have issues. But there we do have these patients that have had either a dialysis catheter placed or some other reasons for having, you know, IVC occlusions. Or if they have, you know, interrupted IVC, for example, uh, in those situations, access to the heart can be can be a challenge. That's kind of a starting point, you know. If, you know, the, the, that's like a very simple, basic EP procedure and ablation. And now you 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 don't have access from an inferior approach to the heart, which is what we use most commonly. We can go superiorly, you know, like get access from the IJ or subclavian and do ablation. But sometimes these patients have had you know, dialysis catheters there too, and they are even occluded there. And then we have to think of going transhepatic or recanalizing the veins. And that where, that's where, you know, we lean heavily on IR and Kyle has helped us out in a lot of these uh, patients. Yeah, I think some of the other things you asked about, uh, w- the newer things that we're doing, you know, le- lead extractions, I'd say, uh, is another area that we have collaborated on. Things that have been in for very long periods of time are likely to break in the process. Okay. He and I have worked together for some different techniques, which are more or less commonplace, I'd say, for IRs, but they're not necessarily as well known in the cardiology uh, training and literature. And uh, using those to get around like a linear object, like a snare, you know, an example would be using a OmniFlush catheter or some sort of refurb catheter and, yeah. and snaring the tip of a glide wire and using the entire thing as a snare. Um, <laughs> that's something that we, you know, we use for hangman technique in a filter right. all the time. And uh, it's it, it was blowing minds over in the cardiology lab. And um, so it's these techniques, we just never come across them in, they don't come across them in their training programs. And similarly, I didn't necessarily know what an e, what a uh, electrophysiology lead looked like until we took the first one out. You know, you see it on x-ray and uh, you just assume it's a piece of metal and it's actually a very thick piece of plastic with metal running through it. And it gives you a whole different uh, take on, okay, this is oh, what's totally. going to be required to get it out of the patient. Yeah, it's a really interesting you know, concept and, and approach in the sense that, I mean, we really, you know, unlike when we deal with, with certain other specialists, uh, like traditional interventional cardiology and vascular surgery, 
for the most part, we're dealing with this same equipment uh, and working with EP and IR together, you know, we have really a lot of different tools and equipment. I, I didn't even think about that, you know, in terms of what the actual makeup of the leads is like. And I think it would be hard for me to, to deal with that, getting sent a patient with a, a trapped lead and, and, and really knowing the, the ins and outs of that device and, and what I can do safely. Well, I mean, another example would be, you know, we use the uh, the ICE, you yeah. know, we use intracardiac echo probe, or some people will call that IVUS, but directional IVUS, a tool that the electrophysiologists are very comfortable with and using all the time. We kind of use it not really knowing all of the bells and whistles that that no. tool can, you know, accomplish. We just basically stick I use it, it in. it for tips and that's yeah, it. Exactly. You put it in for a tips and you turn it around and you flex it a few times and you cut, you know, it does help, but it could help a lot more if you become, you know, more proficient and, and watching Tamid use these in the procedure uh, really gave me a new appreciation for what can be accomplished with this. And it made my, you know, I don't use them for all tips because I, I think we need to train our trainees how to do things the old way sometimes too. Full agree. But uh, it, it definitely uh, shortened the learning curve for some of our residents to be able to bring what he taught me to them. Oh man, I'm, I'm absolutely going to ask one of my electrophysiology buddies to come in for the next one of those I do because I mean, I learned, you know, tips with ice by getting an ice catheter in and twisting it around until I knew what I was looking at. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, it would be nice to have some direction, but, you know, with somebody who is using this, you know, I don't know how frequently used daily, weekly, but that's really cool. But it sounds like you guys are doing, you know, a lot of different cases together. And, and one question I have for you, you know, Kyle, you'd mentioned that, you know, when feasible, you guys both like to see the patients ahead of time. How do you guys know ahead of time when a, a case is likely to require collaboration between your two departments? Like, how do you, when do you bump one up and say like, oh, we're not going to book this guy for just the, the routine extraction or whatever you guys are planning on doing. We're going to need a team effort here. Yeah. You know, I, so from my standpoint, a lot of these patients I see, I see in clinic and, uh, you know, I know, right. Like I, for example, I had a patient that ended up with his ICD and the fistula on the same side, you know, which happens a lot. And he has this huge right arm swelling and his, you know, his fistula keeps getting, you know, occluded. And, you know, so obviously this this sort of case is a slam dunk for me to call Kyle and say, you know, this case we really need to book together because we have to take out this lead and and stent the vein. There are some other cases where, you know, the leads are really old, you know, and again, amongst these pacemaker leads and ICD leads, uh, some of them are more uh, robust than others. Some of these are known to break just the way they are designed. You know, these leads, leads were designed for us to put them in and work properly, not not to yank them out like 30 years later, right? That's, that's no one planned for that. So a lot of these leads are very nice and thin and safe and, you know, give nice numbers. But when it comes time to take them out, they just fall apart. Ugh. And if I, and you know, you know, and if I know ahead of time, I will actually call Kyle and say that, look, you know, I have this case. These leads really need to come out for whatever reason. I can't even leave a small fragment behind. And if you're around or if you can scrub in, that would be great. See, so, so that would be another situation where I would have, you know, where I would book it with Kyle. Now, sometimes, you know, if it is a patient that is only was referred to me and I think I have a good grasp on the situation and I can just call Kyle, uh, Kyle will meet these patients, you know, on the day of the procedure with his, yeah. with his fellow, you know, in the morning off. That's usually how it goes, mm -hmm. uh, typically. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, I, I see patients, I mean, honestly, since COVID, we've, we've been doing more tele-radiology tele, uh, tele yeah, type clinic visits, although that's going to need to change now. I think we need to get, especially, uh, you know, program requirements require a physical clinic. So I think uh, 
using COVID as a, as a uh, excuse is probably not okay anymore. So we're going to go back to physical clinics soon. But, um, you know, these patients that get referred to me are usually being referred for fistula related issues, upper sure. extremity swelling, facial swelling, SVC syndrome, things like that. And I am seeing them in clinic as well. But um, I personally, if they're going to need something to be done electrophysiologically, I want them to see Tamid in clinic. Yeah. Uh, sure. So um, I tend not to do the latter or do what he does and 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 have me see them on the day of because I think the discussions are a little bit more robust for that he's going to have to have with them yeah. as far as device uh, manufacturers and types and selections things like that. I certainly don't know uh, the ins and outs of you know these pacemakers and the leads and and one question I have for you to meet is when do they need to when do they need to go like you know you said you talked about something like they absolutely have to get removed like. Why? Is this what we're talking about venous occlusions or something else? The most common reason we take leads out is actually infection. Okay. We are putting more and more devices in sicker and sicker patients, right? So the risk of getting bacteremia and endocarditis is is extremely high. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my mentors told me staphylococcus and the pacemaker and ICD lead material are a, a match made in heaven. They just... Uh, <laughs> You know, a staphylococcus, once you have staphylococcus in the blood, and I'm saying like a real bloodstream bacteremia, not a contaminant, but once you have staphylococcus bacteremia and you have an ICD or a pacemaker lead, most of the times the pacemaker or ICD lead is seeded and needs to come out. Okay. And if you don't take them out and you try to sterilize them with antibiotics, those patients usually don't do well. That's probably the most common reason. And the other reason is, you know, uh, these leads fracture, break over time. Some people have multiple leads. People keep adding leads, you know. So, hey, uh, you have a dual chamber pacemaker. Your ventricular lead is now fractured. I'm just going to add another pacemaker. And then five years, okay. uh, I mean, another pacemaker lead. And then I'm going to add another pacemaker lead. And next, you know, they have like six pacemaker leads in the heart, you know, going through the SVC. So, again, those would be other situations where those leads would uh, definitely need to come out, especially if they need more leads uh, or they have signs of venous occlusion. Okay. Kyle, how do you approach um, the decision to and, and, and actually placing the stents in these patients with venous occlusions around pacemakers um, and, and both, you know, in the setting of a functional pacemaker and a pacemaker that needs to be removed? Yeah, I think uh, there are a few things that need to be considered. Uh, you know, if the patient, patient's fairly old and life expectancy is short, I think it's not unreasonable to place a stent uh uh, next to a one or mm -hmm. two leads, although I would run that by uh, an electrophysiologist first. But I think in patients where, um, you know, the likelihood that they're going to live a while, that they're going to, you know, that these leads may develop either an infection or a malfunction or a fracture or anything like that, it may need to come out. I think that it's more reasonable to see if they're a candidate for uh, something that's leadless and stent okay. them after it's been removed. You know, kind of a similar but different clinical scenario is these patients that require lower extremity access from, you know, the for a cable occlusion or iliac vein occlusion. You know, those, I, I've done a few of these cases um, for EP where it wasn't entirely clear to me until meeting the patient whether or not they would need a stent. You know, okay. they, so I think you need to take the clinical situation. You know, not every patient has significant lower extremity swelling. They may be wheelchair bound or not really walking much, not really noticing it. And, um, you know, putting in a stent means putting them on anticoagulation if they're not uh -huh. already on it and needs long-term follow-up, things like that. And so there have been a few where I have literally just gotten access and we have not stented at the end of the case because they yeah. weren't significantly symptomatic. So another question about the stents, Kyle, is, you know, as Tamid said, you know, one of the main reasons for removing these is the setting of infection and, and you're getting called in to help to remove this when it's hard to get out. And, you know, let's say that the scenario arises where we've got a, a central venous occlusion around these leaves that you're removing. 
How do you approach stenting in the setting of an active infection? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, ideally, you know, all things being equal, if you could take, a, take out the lead and leave the vessel unstented for a little while and clear them, that would be yeah. great. That being said, we all know that these are highly fibrotic occlusions yeah. and the likelihood of that staying open for a week or two while you give them antibiotics <laughs> is nearly zero. Right. But, you know, we can, we, we can remove the uh, leads and plasty them. And if there's a decent, if there's not a significant residual stenosis, uh, I think that's not re- unreasonable to say, okay, yeah. let's just see how they do and bring them back. But if there is a significant re, uh, if it reoccludes, which is often the case, then I think the stent goes in and you just treat them with yeah. antibiotics. And I guess I hadn't considered the, the possibility if it's a really bad infection with active bacteremia, I guess you could always leave a central venous catheter across the occlusion, you know, treat and come back and stent. But, you know, I think that's still... You know, I don't know if that's much better. Definitely could, but you also you have to consider that a lot of times when we're doing these lead extractions, you know, we're doing a, um, the electrophysiologists are, are like surgeons, you know, you, you, you come into the room and the chest is open because <laughs> oh, they okay. have, you know, they, when they dissect open the, uh, the battery pack, you know, they've actually cut down on the subclavian vein many times because they have to get a okay. fairly large device down to help them extract the leads, um, which is another tool that I learned about after working with the electrophysiology Nice. Team. That's awesome. Um, uh, and so leaving a central venous catheter and not like it, it's, it almost would look like a, like a tunneled catheter the okay. way that it would be entering and it would be in kind of a, you know, a recent surgical bed. So I don't know how, yeah, how plausible that would be. I hadn't thought about that. Okay. Yeah. I guess, I mean, these are big devices. Of course, they're going to have a big incision. Understood. We will get back to the episode in a minute, but first, a brief learning moment from our sponsor, Hinari Medical. I did notice uh, in reviewing some stuff that you had, you had contributed to a study in, I think it was in the annals of, of uh, thoracic surgery on uh, surgical treatment of PE. And so, you know, because of that, I have to ask you, you know, in which circumstances are you guys going straight to surgery for this? Now, pretty much never. <laughs> that was my guess. I was just curious. Yeah. It really is never now. I will tell you that the only time that we would push surgery or, or a surgical intervention would be patients who have a clot in transit and a patent okay. PFO with clot extending into the left atrium. That's when we are sending patients to the operating room. But pretty much, okay. no, we're not, they're not going to the operating room anymore. They're pretty much going to suction thrombectomy because we can get rapid results. Um, with that technique. And I, I think that there's been, you know, really across the board, a, a shift in the endovascular treatment of PE because of these catheters. And I, I think the data is still catching up and we're starting to see a bit more supporting it. But can you tell us about your experiences with this device and really how your approach to treating PE has changed since their introduction? So the large bore thrombectomy devices, and particularly the flow retriever device, which is a aspiration catheter, comes in three sizes, 16 French, 20 French, and 22 French. And it just has a large bore side port and an aspiration syringe. It's really easy to use. It tracks incredibly well, despite being intimidated by the size initially. It really is easy. It's an easy tool to use. The suction thrombectomy device is very uh, reliable in the sense that it can aspirate acute thrombus, subacute thrombus, and even chronic thrombus. Um, huh. I'm surprised what we are able to extract in a few aspirations, and most importantly, just how dramatically better a patient gets um, on the angiography table with these devices. It's really a big paradigm shift 
in uh, the way we manage these PE patients. So I'm very glad that they have been developed and become more uh, simple to use. So I think patients are definitely getting better care with the advent of the PE response team at Jefferson. When you have a team of experts sitting there saying, yes, we all agree that this is the best thing for the patient, there's less reluctance. So the patient doesn't wait. This learning moment was brought to you by Inari Medical. Inari Medical is a medical device company focused on developing products to treat and transform the lives of patients suffering from venous diseases. Inari has developed two minimally invasive, novel, catheter-based mechanical thrombectomy devices that are designed to remove large clots from large vessels and eliminate the need for thrombolytic drugs. The company purpose-built its products for specific characteristics of the venous system and the treatment of the two distinct manifestations of venous thromboembolism, or VTE, deep vein thrombosis, and pulmonary embolism. Find out more information at inarimedical.com. Now back to the episode. So I, I don't really know the best way to go through some of the cases you're doing. And so what I thought I might have you do is you know, kind of walk me through how you guys would approach, you know, one of the more common cases you do that's difficult, let's say, you know, removing a, a lead that's hard to get out, you know, with or without the setting of an occlusion. I just, to me, this is, this is new stuff and I, I don't really know how you're doing them. And so I just kind of like for you to walk me through it. Yeah, a common scenario and uh, Kyle, please feel free to interrupt me and add, you know, but uh, a common scenario would be a patient with a uh, you, you know, who ends up with a, with a fistula and an ICD or a pacemaker on the same side. You know, usually okay. in EP, we try to avoid that. If someone right. has a left-sided fistula, we go right-sided and vice versa. But a lot of times, the other side fistula stops working and so they are forced to go on the side with the ICD or the ICD is placed many years earlier. You know, so there are situations where we land up where it's the they end up on the same side. And now you have a situation where you have this fibrotic material around the lead and the patient has a fistula on the same side, has, has a swollen arm and a non-functioning fistula. And multiple people at an outside hospital have tried venoplasties. Thank God they haven't put a stent around the leads. And uh, now, now they are sent to you for management. So this is where, you know, me and Kyle would work together. Sometimes getting these leads out if they are extremely old and don't have a good design can be very challenging. As I mentioned before, we would prep the entire chest like we are prepping for open heart surgery because a lot of these patients can develop tears of the SVC and cardiac perforations that require immediate okay. sternotomy. And I work with the cardiac surgeon, actually. It's uh, a cardiac surgeon scrubs with me in every case. Like, wow, uh, okay. With bearing very few exceptions. And we, you know, we have a way to split the billing and, and make it work between us, but it's been working great. We've been doing extractions for four years like this. We also prep the groins. We get Two venous axis on the right, two venous on the left. We put a arterial line. The patient already has a radial A line for monitoring. They're completely intubated. We were previously using transesophageal echocardiogram for continuous monitoring. Nowadays, we use intracardiac echo. And so we are through one of the venous axis. We have intracardiac echo. We have a long wire going through the SVC so that if there is a SVC tear, we actually have something called a bridge occlusion balloon that we can put up so that the surgeon has time to repair the SVC. And once all that equipment is in, we then open the pocket and we start extracting. Now, you know, this is where to try to maintain a patency or have a wire through. Sometimes what we'll do is, you know, we'll snare the lead from the leg. And, uh, uh, you know, as, as we are extracting, we'll try to 
pull the snare up kind of to the side so that once the lead is out, we actually have some sort of sheath, you know, yeah. of, of, of whether it's, it's just a glide cat or the snaring sheath that then Kyle can put a wire through and then do a plasty or a stent, most of the times a stent based on the situation. And then after that, we would move on to the other type of device that the patient might need, most commonly a leadless pacemaker or a subcutaneous defibrillator, something like that. Tell me, how does the lead actually get out? I mean, you just pulling? That used to be the case, actually. Many in the in the infant stages of this, where they would literally open the pocket and attach a weight. You know how they used to do for the slip disc treatment? Yeah. They would attach a weight and the patient would live, stay in the hospital for many days. And then the nurse would the nurse would keep their ears open for the clunk when the weight dropped on the floor. And then they would all go and make no sure the way. patient was okay. That's so wild. We've luckily, we've luckily come a long way from that. And uh, now, the, you know, the bottom line is there's a lot of fibrotic material that scars the leads together to one another, as well as to the vessel and the, the vascular and the, the, the cardiac walls. And we can either use mechanical tools, like a, like a, like a rotating cutting tool b within the tool that cuts through the scar tissue as you're pulling the lead. So it's a push and counter push kind of. Or we, we even have laser. Yeah. Uh, uh, so using laser uh, can also be used. Now, laser obviously needs some amount of fluid within the tissue. So if it's a highly calcified kind of occlusion, which it is in many of these uh, end-stage renal disease patients, the laser doesn't work and we have to do mechanical anyway. So yeah, we basically use mechanical and laser tools to cut through the tissue, pushing with those tools as we are pulling the lead out. Uh-huh. And so one question that I have, or I think that the audience may have is, so that's how you get through the venous occlusion if you need to. How does the lead actually attach and then subsequently disengage yeah. from the myocardium? Um, yeah. How is that accomplished? Yeah, so basically we, as we keep going through these, lead, uh, th with these tools, right? It's like a 13 or 14 French sheet, you know, based on the type of device you're using. And we are cutting through scar tissue in the vascular system. We then keep advancing it till we are at the interface of the myocardium and the lead. And if, you know, there are two types of leads. One is a passive lead that has tines that builds up a lot of like fibrotic tissue and that can be harder to get out. And then the other type is the, is an active screw mechanism. Sometimes we will try to disengage the screw before we even embark on taking the lead out. But, you know, after many years, that's difficult to do. But yeah, with traction, counter-traction forces, when your sheath is right at the tip, just by merely traction, counter-traction forces, again, based on the lead design, most of the leads will come out. Yeah, I think a good corollary to this that we see in IR is a stuck vascular access line, something that's stuck in a fibrin sheath. There's, yeah. The last thing you want to do is pull it from the chest. You want to, mm -hmm. you know, if you know that it's going to break, especially like a Grishong or a Hickman or something like that, you're going to want to over advance a sheath over right. it as close to the point where it's stuck as possible before you pull on it. Same thing is true with these EP leads. And, you know, that brought to mind one of the things that we, when we're collaborating, we may want to either disengage the tip of the lead first and then snare the tip. Uh, and then uh, as the lead is extracted, pull the snare, as he was saying, out of the patient. And then we can pull a, a wire back in retrograde. Uh -huh. Or if we fracture it, then we then have to snare the free end of the, you know, the broken end of the lead and pull that out. Finally, if we know it's probably going to break, we may snare it using the technique I mentioned earlier, the hangman technique, and get a hold of it ahead of time before we even disengage it because we know there's a okay. high likelihood it may break. So there's a few different circumstances there where we definitely know we don't want to lose access across a long segment occlusion 
that may be option that may be obstacle one but the other obstacle is what if we have a floating piece of metal in the heart we want to yeah. have you know control of it before totally. we break it that was gonna be my next question it's like you know how do you get through these occlusions and actually snare these things out so so what happens you know the lead or whatever you're removing breaks are there any circumstances when you're just like screw it we're just leaving this thing you know does it always have to go so yeah, great question. I think there are two issues with leaving leads in. You know, one is obviously if the patient is actively infected, right? Then you have still left the foreign body. Now, again, there is a, you know, there's there's some studies where, you know, if it's less than three, four centimeter fragment and you can confirm it, then, then you know, maybe you can sterilize it with antibiotics. But a lot of the times the broken fragments are much longer, much longer than you can even see on fluoro. You know, like Kyle said, a lot of this Material is something plastic and you can't even see it on fluoro. On fluoro, yeah. it will look like a small, small body. But when you look on intracardiac echo, there's this humongous mass with oh. like vegetations around it. And uh, you can't even, it's kind of hard to snare because you can't even see it on fluoro. And sometimes we've used intracardiac echo and, you know, put that atrieve snare, you know, the trilobed atrieve snare, which again, I, I attribute completely to Kyle, you know, to even learning to use that. And we've, we've been able to snare these things out. But yeah, bottom line is, the, the issue about leaving these leads in is if it's infected, it's a problem, especially if sure. it's a long segment. And the number two is MRIs, right? MRIs, again, this falls in the, in the, in the realm of radiology. Mm -hmm. I do, I get referrals, you know, and I try not to do extractions in these situations, but I do get referrals from time to time where patients need an MRI. My yeah. doctor told me that if I get an MRI, they can make the diagnosis and my back pain will go away or my this arm symptoms will get better right. because they'll be able to do the right surgery for me. So doctor, I need an MRI. And they, they, they may have pacemakers and leads that are, you know, very, very old or they may have abandoned leads. And then in those situations, you try to take leads out and if they break and you're kind of back to square one, you've not done the patient yeah. any service, you know, or leaving these leads behind because they, they, they still can't get an MRI. So totally. those, I think, would be the two situations where leaving these leads behind may be problematic. Most important, I think, is infection. Yeah. Now, I didn't even think about that, about having to use ice or, you know, any other imaging that we don't use every day in IR to, to kind of guide removal of these. And then that's when it's really nice to have somebody who's using these things daily, because I think that would, that would certainly be a struggle for me. It's got to be really hard. Can you see the snare pretty well under ice? Yeah. I mean, you have to finagle it. You know, it's obviously not 3D. We, we are going to be getting a 3D, 4D intracardiac echo very soon in electrophysiology. It's going to be very expensive, but mm -hmm. I think that may help, you know, who knows. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit of combination of x-ray and, uh, you know, kind of imagining where the lead plastic fragment might be and, you know, obviously seeing it on ice. You know, I, I did one case recently where it was kind of ice guided. We were able to position the ice correctly so we could see it and, and take it out. In what circumstances are you guys having to do the transhepatic cases? I know that, you know, Kyle is helping a lot with difficult access. Uh, what all are you, are you guys doing from alternative access that you would normally do from IJ or subclavian? I would say that since I came here to this institution, we have not, I have not done a transhepatic access. I've done them in the past, but yeah. uh, I think that we're, we've been quite successful at getting across from other ways. And, yeah. I, you know, I kind of joke anytime somebody's referred to me, for a um a central line and they it's in the groin or something like that i was like well that'll be out tomorrow uh you know <laughs> or or i mean i don't drink but hold my beer we're going to get an access above right and i think that with the right tools and with the right experience i think you can get across most occlusions and you know the transhepatic accesses have their own issues they you know they work right. when uh when all other options have been exhausted but so far we've had good success uh from other avenues 
Yeah, the, the Dave Williams method of, of crossing these. I, I, I would assume that you've been successful with these as well. That's really cool. So, you know, when I was talking with Kyle beforehand, he, he brought up a really good point and something I wanted to ask you guys about are doing these cases together in just two separate departments, even if you're right across the hall, has to present some challenges, you know, in terms of scheduling and, you know, reimbursement equipment and all that. How has that worked and how have you guys confronted those challenges? Scheduling is the hardest uh, oh, part bet. of it, you know, especially with, you know, our practice is big and we're spread across three, three or four different campuses. And um, I know Tamid is just as busy uh, and, uh, you know, he has to deal with block time, which is also a challenge. But these cases typically are going to happen in his lab because of, you know, the, o- the OR environment versus our, our labs are standard IR type non-surgical rooms. So scheduling uh, is the biggest challenge. Which days are we both here on campus, have more than two or three or four hours to do the case um, and have enough fellows that if I have to go back and forth between them, that it's a senior fellow uh, so that I can trust them to get access and things like that before I get back. And so that's been one of the bigger things. You know, we are are working on reimbursement uh, schema to kind of share reimbursement. What we've been doing lately is for the venoplasty, venous and venograms, um, I'm billing for that on my end and everything else is billed for by Dr. Contractor and the cardiothoracic surgeon. Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, the amount of work that goes into it and sometimes you are doing this everything together, you know, like I'm, he's snaring from one side and he's holding it and then I'm going from the other side and then this and, you know, so I don't know if we can, we'll ever get the right amount of reimbursement to be very honest. Sure. Like, you know, you know, right. I, I don't think Kyle can ever make the, you know, for the amount of work he does, I don't think he can ever get paid, you know, enough. That's, that's, that's one of the problems, but that's, that's, you know, I, I don't see any other way of doing this. You know, I mean, you, we, we have to do this collaboratively. Like these cases are very complex and, you know, like has been mentioned before, the two specialties coming together, I think really, you know, brings a whole new like level of thing you can achieve, you know, for the patients. And um, again, you know, I, so some of these procedures, you can't build co-surgeons, this and that, you know, I, again, I'm I'm not a billing expert sure. in any way, but one of the other things that can be considered, you know, for some other programs if is, you know, if, if there's one department doing more of the billing and if say an IR doc is helping out a couple of days a month or something, something, having some sort of interdepartmental transfer of funds, you know, for their time, that may be another way to kind of approach this yeah. issue. I think that, uh, you know, from a not, you know, not just from a billing standpoint, something I wanted to bring up is that, you know, this collaboration with electrophysiology um, has kind of opened the door to collaboration in other areas with cardiology. Nice. You know, sometimes IR, if IR and cardiology are, you know, more competitive than they are at this, at this institution. But I think that uh, it's a good opportunity to, um, you know, bring our services together versus, versus maybe if you're Try, if you're trying to make those relationships with the people who are doing the, the majority of PAD in your institution, you may find a little bit more challenge at developing sure. a collaborative relationship. No, I, I completely agree. I, I think that this really showcases that more than a lot of the other discussions we've had on here in the sense that, I mean, you guys, you've got some very similar skill sets, but, you know, there's a lot of different things that you guys offer, you know, in EP and IR that are, that are very different. And this would be very challenging to do, you know, on your own, as you guys have both demonstrated. There's one thing that I didn't ask that I should have asked earlier, but I think it's really important is to ask you guys, you know, how and when ahead of a case, you know, now obviously sometimes there are going to be cases that come up, you know, the day of, and you're going to need to call Kyle in or vice versa. But, you know, the ones that you guys have time to, to talk about before, like how and when do you guys kind of 
a plan how you're going to approach this because I can imagine they're not all the same. Yeah, I usually uh, bug Kyle a lot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's usually a phone call and a review of images. I think Kyle, you know, Kyle obviously, you know, he he's a, a radiologist, so it helps. He can look at CT scans and all that, so <laughs> unlike me, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, well, I mean, we've, uh, we've reviewed them together. Sometimes I'll review them on my own and get back to him via email or via text. And then every once in a while, there's a clinical scenario where the patient comes in and they don't have the imaging that really answers the question. And so oh, yes. it's always helpful to uh, let him know exactly how to order it and what to type in for the protocol because I don't protocol the imaging studies here, the residents do, and I just, it's better just to type it in. So that helps as well to get the, you know, a, you know, the CT of the chest, not at like 10 seconds after the contrast goes in and it doesn't tell you anything in right. versus like a more delayed venous phase. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to ask a bit about how you follow up with these patients, but I would imagine it all depends, you know, it depends on one, like, are we implanting anything else new in terms of, you know, like a, a, a leadless pacemaker or a new ICD, or if it's, we're taking all these things out and now we have stents, I guess that kind of determines who kind of runs the follow-up, right? Most of them are going to see Dr. Contractor and follow-up because uh, at the end of the day, they are a cardiology patient yeah. um, uh, for life. If there are patients that have stents placed or uh, they have ongoing swelling issues. I continue to see them in clinic. If I put in any stent, I tend to see them yeah. until I either, we're either going to stop their anticoagulation because we've proven that they're going to stay open long term, or rarely they'll have a you know a surgeon or a nephrologist that's uh, of an interventional nature who wants to resume their their care because we are a tertiary care center. So some of these patients are referred from other doctors for assistance, and they're willing to resume care at some point. Hey Kyle, so when you've let's say you've you've removed you guys have removed some leads. And you've stented as well for essential venous occlusion because, you know, this patient has just had work done on his or her myocardium. Do you have to delay anticoagulation or do you just start it as you normally would for, you know, let's say a dialysis patient with an occlusion? I'm personally not overly concerned about it. These patients are on like 20,000 units of heparin sometimes That's during the procedure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Dr. Contractor may have, uh, you know, some other thoughts on them. Um, I usually say you can resume it whenever it's okay with electrophysiology. Yeah, usually if it's a stent-related, you know, issue and, uh, you know, everything goes well, there's no perforation, no pocket issues and all. And if it's going to be dual antiplatelet therapy, you know, yeah, we are usually okay to start it as okay. pretty quickly. Yeah, one of the other things that I wanted to, uh, you know, bring up is uh, some of the emergent situations that we've, uh, you know, we've been able to collaborate together. It's building a relationship like this on, you know, a non-emergent setting allows them to be very comfortable giving us a quick call when something comes totally. up that's out of the ordinary. Like a good example would be, I don't know, did you want to talk about the the case yeah. with the leadless? I can talk about two situations that I, you know, that there are these, we have these uh, uh, sessions in our symposium, it's called Nightmares in the EP Lab. You know, so this <laughs> is one of, so we, so we had two nightmares in the EP Lab that I could think of. So I was thinking about it yesterday and today in, in, in ahead of the, one of the nightmares in the EP Lab was, you know, I had learned uh, a little bit of snaring from Kyle and Kyle, you know, wasn't there one day. Uh, I mean, he, he was in the other lab and I was snaring. Someone had more than 30 year old leads and it broke and I wow. was snaring. And, you know, I made the mistake now in retrospect of using like a single lobe gooseneck type snare. And I snared it and I pulled so hard. And I'm sure this has happened to you guys before, but it's never happened to me. I didn't even think this was possible. The snare broke yeah. in the heart. And went nicely to the right atrium and sat nicely in the right ventricle below the tricuspid valve. And I was, I felt like I was dreaming. You know, I, I was like, what is this? Like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, and the entire lab was kind of shocked. 
So now, you know, we are already two, three hours into this case. We're trying to get leads out. We still need to put leads back in. And now there's this broken snare in the tri- under the tricuspid yeah. valve. That's when I get really sweaty. Yeah. I mean, I, that not good. <laughs> That's a true nightmare, you know. And uh, in, a, in a few seconds, I, I said, you know, we need to call Kyle. And luckily, Kyle was there. I think, you know, Kyle saw my face and he kind of realized how bad it was. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful he dropped whatever he was doing and he scrubbed in. And, you know, it was a great collaboration. You know, that day I, you know, I learned like he has the skills and, but he doesn't, he may not know some of the tools that we have. So like we, we have this like deflectible sheet. So, you know, we tried to go from nice. the legs. We couldn't, we, we, we couldn't get it from under the tricuspid valve from the legs. So we said, let's go from the SVC. We tried a non-deflectible sheet. We just couldn't get, you know, under the valve and kind of loop it under the valve to get it. So, you know, I said, we, we, we have a deflectible sheet. So he said, yeah, great. So he went with that and, you know, he was able to go under the valve and somehow take it out. It was like, you know, snaring a snare. I mean, for, for, for you guys, that's probably not so, not, you know, uh, that, <laughs> no, it's still pretty for, cool. For us, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of unheard of in the EP literature. We were, I have not had to snare a snare. Man. That's so, awesome. So, you know, and again, yeah. So yeah, uh, seven hours later, you know, all the leads came out again. Skiles remained scrubbed in, leads came out, new leads went in and patient actually did very well in follow-up. And, you know, that's one of the cases. The other cases was these leadless pacemakers. You know, sometimes they stop working. We, we put them in and they start looking like they're going to fall off. And so we go back in and try to take them out. And again, you know, now it's like, you know, okay, I've snared some. Let's try to snare this out. I'm not going to bother IR. They are, they are very busy. And so I tried to take this out. And as I was taking it out, it kind of let loose on me. So now I have this leadless pacemaker in, in, and it's going from the right atrium, right ventricle, IVC, like just literally going round and wow. round and round and round. And I was like, uh, I don't think Kyle was there that time. It was one of his colleagues, but, you know, I, I was able to, you know, again, I, we called IR right away and I was somehow able to put that multi-loop snare and catch one of the tines of that. And then I, with the help, again, the IR person walked me through this, like, put another snare, snared the button that we used to actually snare it, let go of the other snare and then come out, you know? So again, both these situations, otherwise, you know, it's open heart surgery, you know, the EPC, yeah. we, we, we don't know all this stuff, you know, we, we, you know, we, we look at ECGs and rhythms and all that, you know, that's, that's, that's what we do. <laughs> all this stuff is, you know, not, not what we do commonly and not what we are trained for. So yeah, I think it's, it's just been amazing having, having this sort of help and collaboration. Yeah, with that first uh, that first case you mentioned, shout out to Peter Horner. I would mention that that was a single loop <laughs> snare that broke and a trilobe snare that was used oh, to retrieve that's it. Great. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That's gonna that's that's gonna get to him. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah, he'll have a snarky response though. It's of course okay. he will. Yeah, as he always <laughs> does. That, that is awesome. Those are really cool cases, and, and I think it's really cool in general what you guys are doing. I mean, it, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it it's it's different skill sets with some unique. I mean, with some some shared things in the middle, but uh, it sounds like you've both been able to learn a lot from each other in, in treating these patients and treating these patients that may not have been treatable, you know, with just one of you. And so hats off to both of you for this. That's pretty much all I have. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to talk about that I didn't review? Uh, no, you know, I think I just wanted to emphasize that, you know, taking out these infected leads and the collaboration with IR and EP, that actually is like, literally you're saving the life you know it's not like quality of life or some arm swelling this is literally or you know it's it's a clear mortality benefit so i i can't i can't emphasize how much i'm you know grateful for this collaboration you know because so many of these patients if i had not worked with kyle or learned with kyle i would 
you know, the, a lot of these cases, I would not be able to take out, you know, the entire hardware. So, you know, I think, I think that is probably the most important thing, you know, for yeah. me, for this relationship. I'd say right back, there are patients who I, I think we would do doing the patient a genuine disservice if we treated them without involving electrophysiology first. And another point being, you know, we're both in academics, cardiology at most hospitals is going to have a more robust infrastructure and uh, sure. for publishing research. And, uh, you know, it's led to multiple great collaborations on publications and presentations because of uh, the collaboration in the Andrew yeah, Suite. I bet. Well, guys, thank you. Uh, I'm really glad we got to highlight this. You know, this is like one of our mottos at, at Backtable, you know, collaboration, not competition. And, and I think it's really awesome what you guys are doing. I wanted to thank you both for, you know, sharing your Sunday with us and, and thank our listeners as well for sharing their time. And look, I, I look forward to having you guys back on sometime and, and talk about some more of what you're doing. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. Uh, I, I got to get back to supervising my uh, senior resident, Dr. Floresca, soon-to-be <laughs> partner, uh, since I'm on call. But I look forward to listening to more of these back tables. Uh, they're fantastic. Thanks, man. We, uh, we've been working hard on them. And so thanks again. Thanks, Mike. It was great, uh, great to be on this. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.